raw, uncut, and unapologetic. Welcome to Men Talking Mindfulness with your hosts John McCaskill and Will Schneider. Here we focus on helping men and those with men in their lives solve some of life's complex challenges through understanding the practices of mindfulness and how they can help. Each episode is in an environment free of judgment and criticism with a focus on authenticity and inner peace. Let's dig in. Welcome back to Men Talking Mindfulness. Today, we have another return guest who's a beacon of insight and hope for many grappling with psychological trauma. We're very excited to welcome back to the show, Dr. Doc Shauna Springer, renowned for her expertise on trauma recovery, military transition, and close relationships. Now, we previously ventured into the realm of men and therapy with Doc, but today we're venturing deeper and maybe even darker into a profound and deeply personal space, the realm of moral injury. At its core, a moral injury scars the very fabric of our moral conscience. It's the result of witnessing or participating in acts that grossly violate our moral compass. These aren't just everyday compromises. These are profound betrayals of what we hold as ethically sacred. And the aftermath, feelings that can range from guilt and shame to a profound sense of betrayal and even anger towards those we once trusted, our leaders, or society itself. It's a topic most commonly discussed in the backdrop of military experiences, but moral injury does not discriminate. From frontline healthcare workers during the COVID-19 pandemic facing impossible decisions to survivors of accidents, abuse, and assault, its shadow has touched many. The term itself was coined by psychiatrist Jonathan Shea, spotlighting not just the psychological, but the deep social, cultural, and spiritual ramifications of trauma. As the International Center for Moral Injury so aptly puts it, it's about broken trust, a betrayal of our very essence and shared moral values. Today, we hope to shed light on this oft misunderstood facet of human experience with Doc Springer's invaluable insights and our collective quest for understanding. Let's embark on this journey, a journey into the heart of moral consciousness, its fractures and the pathways to healing. Welcome back, Doc. So great to have you on the show. Will, so great to see you, brother. And I'll turn it over to you for some announcements. Yeah, it's great to have you back here, Doc. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, just, uh, hey, merch store is open. We are selling merch. It feels great to be having Men Talking Mindfulness merch out there. You can pick up yours at mentalkingmindfulness.com slash shop. Mentalkingmindfulness.com slash shop. You know, so thank you for, for supporting the show and for following us on social. Uh, you can find us at anywhere men talking mindfulness uh, at men talking mindfulness just search men talking mindfulness and thank you all for being here for tuning in for sharing our podcast for helping us grow and for becoming more mindful uh, let's jump in we're just going to do our little five breath grounding practice just so we can calm down and uh, kind of open up the portal in our mind and our body to kind of receive some of this wisdom that uh, doc shana is going to drop today for us so uh, let's just start. Eyes closed, that's safe. Maybe ground hands, ground feet. And we're going to start with a nice, easy exhale out the mouth. Let it go and see if we can melt a little deeper into this moment. Take a nice big breath in. 
and let it go out nice and easy. Again, in big, broad belly breath. Exhale, let it go nice and easy. Again, in. Easy out. Last two in. See if you can just soften the exhale a little bit more, and hopefully that helps to soften your mind and your body as well. And just going easy, doing what you can. And one more time, inhale. Exhale, exhale, exhale. Great, guys. And awesome. You can slowly come back, wiggle. Oh, fingers, toes, if you like. Turn the head a little side to side. Open your eyes. And uh, awesome, guys. Um, it's great to be here. Let's talk, uh, dive in about moral injury. Let's do it. All right. Well, I'll, I'll jump right in. Um, and, you know, this is similar to some of the foundation that we talked about when we spoke about men and therapy. But hmm. what what led you, Doc, uh, to learn more about moral injury and how would you define it for someone hearing the term for the first time? Aside from me defining it in the intro, in your own words, how would you define it? All right. Well, before we jump in, John, <laughs> and this is sacred ground. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah. When you talk about the sacred, like for me, it starts with friendship. Um, so before we jump into the really serious stuff we're going to talk about today, like I can't resist commenting that Will and I have gone in very opposite directions since the last time we've talked. I had hair that was down here and I am now finding that my life is revolutionized by this new hairdo where I'm like... <laughs> It's just revolutionary. Is this what you guys, I mean, That's this is going to be it. months or years in my life that I get back with no blow dryer in sight. Right. I can be, you know, out the door in like five minutes. Like, I don't, I don't know if I'm going back. Like, I don't, I don't know if I'm going back. Like, this is awesome. And Will, um, you, you look like your logo, the men talking mindfulness logo, first of all. And, you know, there's a name for that. You are like, yeah, you're a walking billboard. If you if you guys send me a shirt, by the way, I will one. be a walking billboard for you too. So just just putting that plug in. But but will they call this demonstrative masculinity? Oh, I didn't. There's know a that. term Is for it? this. Yeah. Okay. Like John's, like you know, he's sprouting a little bit, <laughs> yeah. but like you're yeah, in, like you're leaning into like the hairiness that is, yeah. and. This is demonstrative masculinity. It's a man saying, you know, look at what I can sprout, like the antlers, you know, on a buck. Uh, so I just have to comment on that before I can get into anything serious. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, uh, well thank on. you. I, I feel this comes from my DNA, though. This, uh, this is just how I like I'm not thinking like, oh, I really want to demonstrate my masculinity <laughs> when I look in the mirror and like no. have this beard. I'm like, this feels right is what kind of yeah. comes to me. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. it would be a problem for me if I could do that. Right. That would be a social problem. Um, but for you, it's, it's great. It's a good look. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Doc. I tried. I tried to grow my hair 
for a while. Like we went out for about a year and a half and then I was like, oh, I got to chop it off. I can't do it. But now I'm back. Why? As, as, Did you get as, like a Fuban too or was no, it like full? No, no, not the beard, the, my, my hair on my head. I, oh. This is, I, it doesn't get much longer than this for me. It, uh, you could do yeah, it. It is what it is. But um, yeah. <laughs> yes, but I, I've tried to grow it long and then I was like, oh my gosh, this is just so much work. And so mm -hmm. I, yeah. and, and my wife she yeah. chopped her hair off a while back, not, not to the extent that you have, but she chopped it off and, and I was like, oh babe, I, I really like it long. She's like, well then you can fix it for me. I was like, oh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to my old world, John. John's like trying to do burpees and his like Fabio hair is like getting stuck under his armpits and he's like, I'm done. <laughs> this is, this. This is why the military has regulations. That's right. Because yeah, otherwise, people time. would be in front of the mirror fussing for like right. hours a day, and they just they can't right. have it. So. <laughs> oh man, how how do we go forward from that? <laughs> we just, Anywhere just, you want, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's get back. Uh, uh, let's get back right. into moral injury. I mean, I think chopping my hair off after I'd spent a year and a half growing it, that was. Uh, that was definitely a, uh, a mistake because I cut it and I was like, oh, man, I actually liked it long. Oh, well, there's no going back. But you enjoy having it yeah. short and that's good. Um, that's definitely not the, what we're talking about today, though. That's, that is not on the extent of a moral injury, right? What, what no. in the, in no, the no. terms of uh, yeah. moral injury, how right. did you define it? How did you get into that topic? Yourself? So, yeah, let's, let's dig in. So, yeah. um, so Jonathan Shea is a luminary when it comes to defining moral injury. He's a psychiatrist that did a lot of work with warfighters in the Vietnam War. And he, as you said in the intro, defined it as um, participation um, or uh, per, you know, participating in or having to be part of acts that violate your moral code, your moral core. Um, and so that was kind of the first definition of moral injury. Moral injury and, and PTSD need to be differentiated, you know, at the outset, mm -hmm, like yeah. they're not the same thing. And so that's the first thing I have to do is kind of help people understand, help your listeners understand that these are two separate conditions. And often the way that you overcome moral injury is different from how you overcome post-traumatic stress injury. So um, they're both injuries in my book. There's no PTSD, it's uh, post-traumatic stress injury. Right. And these are two discrete, discrete conditions. So post-traumatic stress injury um, is really about feeling like the world is not a safe place and others can't be trusted. Okay, so people find themselves in a state of hypervigilance. They're very reactive. They're in a fight or flight mode. Um, certainly it can change their identity in some ways to be in that mode, but it's primarily an anxiety disorder. Moral injury is not the world is unsafe and people can't be trusted, so I have to be perpetually on guard against them. It's I am somehow morally contaminated. Yeah, that's deep. I am somehow unworthy of belonging in the tribe that I hold sacred, whether that's my family, that's your home front tribe, right? If my wife knew the things that I think or the things that I've done, she would know that I'm not a good man. Mm -hmm. I'm rotten to the core. I'm a monster. Um, or among your unit, if we're talking about a group of guys, you know, in the civilian world or um, a military unit, it's a sense of I don't belong because I'm somehow morally contaminated 
or deficient. And so I have this feeling of shame about who I am as a result. And so we have to get into uh, the difference today between shame and guilt as well and and lots of other meaty topics. But let me just start the conversation by saying those are the distinctions that are meaningful between post-traumatic stress injury and moral injury. And people can have one, the other, or both. Mm -hmm. So you can have post-traumatic stress injury, no moral injury. You can have moral injury and not have PTSI. Or you can have, in many cases, those that I serve have both. Yeah. And I'm glad that... I'm glad that you brought that up because that was actually going to be one of our questions is the difference between yeah. those. And yeah. also I want to quickly delve in, sorry, Will, uh, just this no, ties directly into the question. You talked about <clears throat> moral injuries is your morals being injured by your acts. You're actually doing something. Mm. Can moral injury come from not doing something? And what I mean by that is, witnessing something that you didn't stop that you probably should have or that you feel that you should have uh, or not participating on the battlefield when you had buddies that were on the battlefield and they died. Can moral injury come from that? You know that it can because you read my book. Um, Yeah, that's like a a softball pitch. Um, So, yeah, so what I said just to clarify is that Jonathan Shea defined this originally as participating in things that violate your moral core. Right. And that in my work, I have worked very hard to expand the aperture of saying it's not just this classic concept of I participated in atrocities of war, for example. Like I did things that are against my own moral core. Um, Just surviving when other people you love die can breed a moral injury. Right. Um, not being able to take action that's aligned with your code can create a moral injury. Um, and so my work has really in this area been about really expanding people's understanding of moral injury and how it um, unfolds. One of the things we have to get to maybe a little bit later once we've developed the concepts is unaddressed post-traumatic stress injury is the gateway to moral injury. Mm. Okay. I have to describe how that plays out for people to understand this. Unaddressed post-traumatic stress injury leaves your flank open for an insidious form of moral injury. I I was wondering if uh, we can like kind of flesh out a little more context before we kind of go into those things in the sense of like, we just yeah. kind of said, I mean, for me, cause like, you know, John, you've experienced moral injury. I mean, doc, doc, you have a whole, you know, book and you practice around this in a lot of ways, you know, but I'm kind of like, you know, um, not a veteran, not been attached to the military community. And, uh, you know, when honestly, when moral injury came up as a topic, I'm like, Oh, like, what does that really kind of mean? Uh, and you know, cause I just, you know, that's just where I went, where my head went. But we also mentioned as far as like, so if we're, if we're injuring our mortality or, or like our morals in some way, then we also talked about what is this moral core? What is this moral code that we're kind of alluding to when we talk about the injury? And is that something that, you know, we're inherently wired with? I mean, where does this come from? Is it, I don't think it's not a belief or religion, but it can be, but like, you know, uh, 
can we just dive into that? It, like the truth of, of the moral code and, and the moral uh, core and the moral compass that is often kind of spoken of. Um, and then, yeah. you know, as a means to kind of like to understand like more deeply where this injury kind of really comes from. Yeah, that feels right. And that's why I'm resisting really going into like deep analysis because I think yeah. we have to set the stage a bit better. So yeah, um, thank you. it depends on the person. To answer your question, Will, it depends on the person. The reason why as a civilian, you haven't probably heard of this is because um, within the pool of civilians I've treated, there's a lot more variability in terms of people having a code or not than okay. in the warfighter community that I serve. Mm. So the thing about military um, training and becoming a military service member is most of the people in the military have a code. And if they didn't have a code, then the military supplies them with one. Okay. So if you come into boot camp, if you go through officer training, you are instilled with a sense of a standard, a moral standard, a code like all of the military training that you do is designed in some ways to instill that warrior code in you so that you will operate according to those moral standards and principles that goes for somebody from the butter bars. You know, we talked about in the pre-show yeah. like the, you know, newly minted officers all the way up to the people, you know, that are our generals and, and the, the topmost military leaders are to be led by this, warrior code. And so in the military, the reason why moral injury is such a thing is because you have to have a moral standard that you're clear on for there to be a moral injury. Right. Now, compare and contrast that with civilians. Some guys um, have a very clear moral code. They're civilians, but they have a very clear moral code. I find this very often, for example, among civilians who serve as protectors and defenders in our first responder occupations. Sure. Mm. So we're talking about firefighters, police officers, EMTs, dispatchers, um, paramedics, all those folks, ER doctors mm -hmm. that are our first line responders often have a very clear moral code that they're aware of. Okay, then coming out from there in the civilian population, if we're focused on men here, um, a lot of men, civilians and otherwise, have a moral code around who they are as a, a father or a protector. Mm -hmm. Kind of the way that we socialize men in our society does instill some general moral code if they adopt it. But that's a big if, because a lot of them don't. And a lot of them in the civilian world will say, yeah, so I bailed on work or like, uh, I'm not really, you know, like faithful to my wife. Well, you know, infidelity is like, you know, pretty common and I'm going to give myself a pass and happens to a lot of marriages or eh, I just, you know, felt like binge watching TV. If you don't have a clear moral code and a lot of people in the civilian world don't, mm. then you can't be morally injured because mm, right. there's a lot more degrees of freedom you give yourself around the things that unfold in your life. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, but also when I'm, when I'm, I was started studying morality and there's, Oh my God, it goes really deep. But they also said something like, you know, um, cause I feel, is there a part that we're kind of hard, hardwired with when it comes to morality, like such as the golden rule, 
like something like do unto others as others are do unto you. Like is and I feel like that I feel when I say that and I guess I just have lived it, like that feels like something that comes from deep inside of me and not necessarily a belief system that has kind of been instilled in me, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So we have to separate the moral code from a faith, a particular okay. faith, right? This is not okay. about a particular spiritual faith. Right. Um, I would say about you, Will, that the reason you and John get along so well and you can kind of fold in with warriors is that mm. you do have your own moral code. Yeah. You do. For sure. You're like one of the guys in the civilian world that I would like, okay, I, I have something I could understand and work with around your moral code. Um, mm. And not everybody does. Not Got everybody it. does. A lot of people I, I work with are lost and they're mm. unclear of who they are and what they stand for. Mm. Um, and so that is a whole other scope of work. So mm. there's a reason why there's a golden rule and a lot of people may have that, but a lot of people are not clear. You have to know who you are and what you stand for to mm. have a moral code. And a lot of civilians do, but there's a lot of civilians that don't as well. Whereas in the military, that's just much less the case. Um, most right. people have some kind of warrior code that leads them. Yeah. And, and like you said, the variance there is, is less. There's certainly, mm -hmm. there certainly yeah. are military members who have less of a moral code. Yeah. Um, or uh, none, like, right. Or none. Um, but they're, they're pretty quickly filtered out for the most part. Yeah. There's obviously exceptions, but the, the warrior culture that you're a part of, if you see someone, I don't know, even a, a, as simple as for the most part, again, I mean, it, I will admit that there is a lot of yeah. going back to infidelity that that is there's a lot of that on both sides of the coin yeah. in the military. But um, yeah. but, you know, somebody stealing another person's gear, you're like, hey, dude, that that's, you know, so and so's gear. <laughs> yeah, and, right. and, and so you, you quickly become known as someone who doesn't have a moral code. Yeah. So there, the variance there, like you said, is, is less in the military. Yeah. Why would you want to be part of that tribe if you're not going to fit in? Right. You would get quickly punished in some like severe social ostracism mm -hmm. way. Right. And you mm -hmm. probably wouldn't want to stay in or you'd get kicked out. Right. Um, because you you've self-selected out. Yeah, so the people right. that, right, that self-select in to the military are people that are willing to adopt a moral code. And then to your point, John, it's domain specific. So mm. maybe infidelity in the military is not, I would say, not a core part of the military's code of ethics. That's not part of the, the warrior ethos sure, for a lot not. of people. It's not. They say, but, oh, I give myself a pass on that. It doesn't mean anything. It's just meaningless sex. But to your point, this is the stuff that's sacred to me. I would never leave a brother behind. I would never mm. take someone's gear. You know, these kinds of these things that define that culture and tribe and who is in and who is out um, are very clear, whereas it's a lot less clear and heterogeneous in the civilian population. Right. I mean, you have to be able to trust your brother, your sister next to you because they yep. they have a firearm. They're, yep. Your life is literally in their hands at some time. That's I right. Mean, I know when I was back in the teams, stacked on a door, we all have a firearm. We're going into this room. There's potential enemy in that room, and you don't know. If you don't trust the yep. guy behind you or in front of you, you can't enter that room with full faith that everything's going to be taken care of. So you have to have that warrior code um, and trust to to move forward in the in the career because otherwise you are going to self-select out or select them out 
one mm. way or the other. So yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. And that is why Dr. Jonathan Shea, who's a luminary, but one of the early thinkers, he developed this in the context of working with Vietnam combat warfighters mm -hmm. because the signal to noise ratio was too great. It didn't, this phenomenon didn't show up until someone like Shea with his brilliance got embedded in trust with those warriors and started to see with clarity what was going on. And he, you know, had a, an initial early conceptualization that I think is um, helpful in, in orienting us, but I, I've really wanted to expand the aperture because I've seen that among warfighters, it's moral injury, not um, not um, post-traumatic stress injury, mm. that's actually more directly related to suicide attempts. Oh, wow. Now, the, the wow. signal-to-noise ratio that you mentioned there with the Vietnam veterans, in, in what exact aspect are you referring? Are you referring how what they were perceived when they came back? You know, a lot of people were like, hey, you guys are baby killers. Is that what you're yeah. referring to? Well, okay. but, but all in, of it, right? The silent majority was still supportive, but the there were still right. a lot of people out there that were lambasting our troops when they when they returned. Well, that's a layer of it, right? Yeah. So it was so bad. I mean, if that's you could write a playbook for how not to protect a warrior's mental health, mm. you would do Vietnam. So we trained up these people. Um, not in units, but as we individually replace people in the combat zone, they were sent over by themselves, not with other people they trusted mostly. They served in conditions where their people they love, like family, died, and they were questioning whether it was all worth it, um, that they were feeling like they had been lied to and deceived um, and were captives um, in some sense, a lot of the Vietnam veterans I talked to said, I didn't have a choice. I got drafted. Right. It wasn't aligned with my moral code to go in. Mm. And then mm. you sent me over into the jungle and people I loved like family got killed. And I'm not sure if it was even worth it. And I feel like I was lied to mm. by our leadership. And then I came home and I was psychologically spit on, if not physically, you know, that right. people say I was spit on and Sometimes they were physically spit on, but a lot of times what they're communicating is American society made me feel like used toilet paper. Right. They devalued my value as a male, and they sent me into a war that I didn't agree with. Um, they um, killed people I love like family, and then they came back and trashed my identity mm. when I didn't have a choice in the first place. So, like, every condition that creates moral injury was present in that terrible development in our society the way we did that war not was the war worth it or not i'm not getting into that here just yeah, the no. way we rolled that out was like mm -hmm. a playbook for the worst possible scenario to breed moral injury and that's why you get someone like shay with his perceptive abilities into that mix and he's going to see what's going on and start to classify hey this is something discreet and something that is happening to a whole sector of our men it's gotcha. men here I'm talking about because women weren't drafted. So right. this has right. to be focused on males. Right. Wow. Does this, uh, it sounds like moral injury cuts even deeper than PTSD, whereas like moral injury kind of goes to like the core of uh, you as a human being and functioning in society, whereas PTSD yeah. is kind of a reaction to the experience that you've had in whatever. I mean, on a battlefield, obviously, seeing someone die, shooting somebody. Um, or even like I imagine like killing someone also has a would have a deep moral effect as well. Um, I just wanted to Sometimes. kind of like that's what I'm Not gaining. Right, that's what I'm gaining from this conversation of how um, 
you said earlier, like how uh, moral injury, like is you're treating it more often than not more often, but PTSD. It's like you're finding moral injury is kind of a is a kind of creates quite, quite an incredible struggle within men and people. Hmm. I don't have really a question. I'm just yeah, like, well, uh, like that's yeah. very insightful, very insightful. So there's you're spot on with one piece of that, and there's one piece that we need to think differently about. So um, the spot on piece is it cuts way deeper than post traumatic stress injury, and you you've seen and perceived that accurately mm-hmm. because post traumatic stress is about the world's not safe and other people can't be trusted, mm-hmm. and so it's not necessarily initially about I am ashamed of who I am. Mm-hmm. Now, at some point, we have to get to how unaddressed post-traumatic stress is the gateway to moral injury sure, because you, you get from that. there to moral injury pretty quickly. But if somebody had post-traumatic stress injury, let's say that they were in, I don't know, a fire happened, it burned down their house, or um, they saw their buddy get killed in combat, um, and they had a lot of post-traumatic stress around that. If we in our society could treat that effectively with the treatments that, for example, my organization Stella does and the insights that um, I can bring into that equation, if you paired those two and got people actually healed from this injury, then they wouldn't develop moral injury. Mm-hmm. Um, the piece that I need to get in there with you on a little bit yeah. is uh, killing people doesn't create moral injury for a lot of service members. And that's mm-hmm. something that civilians often um think and and believe and and write about because we are not necessarily wired like warriors and trained the way they are. Um, I talk to guys all the time that like they say it felt great to kill people. I enjoyed it. I felt a rush of pleasure in fragging that guy or taking that guy out. And that doesn't make them psychopaths. Like this is my message around that. Like if you are in the right context as a warrior and you take people out and you feel joy and pleasure in that, then we need to understand that from their moral framework. Mm. Those people they're taking out are trying to kill people they love like family. Now, as a mom, if somebody's coming after one of my kids, I'm not going to feel anything but joy about taking them out. Right. Like that is my right as a mom to my primal right is to protect those that I love as a Mm. mom. And so it's a, a quick kind of like logical yeah. step to understand that warrior ethos where that can feel amazing and pleasurable and they could not be a sociopath and it's not a moral injury. Right. Wow. Um, Thank you. When you, yeah. So it depends like killing someone maybe, but usually not. It depends on the context and, and the, the type of kill. Right. Um, was it a righteous kill or does it feel like morally, um, kind of mixed up with someone's warrior code and those can be very serious moral injuries in that case. Yeah. The, some of the ones that I've, okay. I've heard from guys over, overseas, uh, at one point in, in Iraq, um, they were filling bags with apples and at the bottom of the bag, there was a grenade. And so that, you know, they would give these apple, this bag of apples to U.S. service members. They're eating the apples and then they eventually take the pressure off the grenade and it would blow up in their face. And so some of the snipers were starting to shoot the bottom of these bags out to uh, ideally mm-hmm. shoot the, the, you know, the, shoot the bottom of the bag. To trigger the, the grenade. grenade. Yeah. yeah. And, but in doing so, the child would die. 
And quite often, you know, the child doesn't know what they're doing. They're just giving a bag of apples right. to a service yeah. member. And that's where I've, I've seen guys really struggle with the moral injury is like it's, yes, they're saving someone, but they're also taking somebody's life who most likely doesn't know what's happening. You know, when you look at a, like my son, he's very young. And if I gave him a bag of apples, he wouldn't know the difference between a bag of apples and a bag of apples with a grenade in it. Um, yeah. So that's uh, that's where I've seen is instances like that's that. Right. You know, that's what bubbles to my surf, uh, to the But but yeah, so, taking out an enemy yeah. who is actively trying to take right. you out yeah. or your brother right next to you, no qualms. Whatsoever. Not a problem. Yeah. Not a problem. Yeah. That doesn't yeah. stick in your conscience. No. Um, yeah. But but with the the example that you provided, John, that's a really beautiful example of how exactly this can happen. So. The core of the warrior ethos is protector and defender, and it's the same for first responders. So the worst trauma that they have is answering calls where a child gets killed. Um, There's a guy that I've been talking to recently. He's a firefighter, but he could have been a special forces guy. Like he's just wired that way. And he ended up, you Mm. can take my word for it, that he would have been a really good operator because he thinks that way. Um, And his worst call was responding to a fire Um, where this guy burned a woman alive as she was breastfeeding one of her babies and then burned both of the babies alive. And the firefighters came in the scene, right? And there's these two charred bodies of these babies. Like that's their worst trauma. It's very similar to what you said um, because the moral injury there is around, it's a deep trauma of like, how can I, um, could I have done something? Could I have gotten there sooner? Like this is such a violation of the protector and defender code. It's, it's almost like if you know up here, you didn't do anything wrong, but you feel so helpless, right. Right. About something that violates your warrior code, then moral injury can start to breed from that. Um, even if you know, logically I came as soon as I could, Yeah, um, you still I mean, be kind really of imagine. like armchair quarterbacking that for the rest of your life, Absolutely. unless you get some help. Absolutely. Oh, I can only imagine that situation. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm glad that you brought up the first responders because, again, as I mentioned in the beginning, right. um, so much of when you hear the term moral injury, it's it's often, you know, in the in the context of military. And we've talked about that quite a bit. But now we obviously know that there are other ways that moral injury, right. like, like we talked about in the, in the intro, COVID-19, like my, my sister has been an ER uh, and a ICU nurse and, you know, walking into spaces where the family couldn't be there with their dying yep. loved one, that can right. be a moral injury. Like you want your, your morals are, Hey, this, this person gets, should ideally have yeah. the opportunity to say goodbye to their loved ones, but they didn't. Right. So there was all sorts of moral injury in that case as well. So I'm glad we covered that. Yeah. But, yeah, that's a great, and I'm glad to hear that you fold in our ER docs and our oh, yeah. medical right. providers because they are warriors of a kind. They have oh, the absolutely. warrior ethos, a, a variant of that, and COVID was so terrible for them because it was worse than conditions in a combat zone. Like corpsmen, medics, you know, you get some casualties. They were getting 10 or 20 dead patients a day. A day at this, the height of the surge. So right. one yeah. of the, um, if folks have a chance to watch this movie, it's called The Shot, 
on YouTube, and it's PenFed that produced this series. Oh yeah. And one the of the bank. patients that I referred is an ICU nurse named Shannon, who was in New York during yep. the surge of COVID, and we treated her at Stella, um, and it it helped her um, post traumatic stress injury. Just it was a game changer for her, but. It's very important to me that we include medical providers um, like ER docs and others that get in the trenches with people as part of who we think of as warriors and protectors and defenders in their way. Right. right. Hmm. Well, yeah. let's since you, you mentioned a little bit of what, what, what it is you're doing now at Stella, um, can we talk about effective strategies to help someone heal from moral injury and then... Um, this is another one question that we were going to ask, but I'll also see it over here in the comments from, from LinkedIn. What can we do as society to help either prevent or overcome moral injury? So kind of two-sided question there. Okay. So let's start with the first one. Yeah. And the groundwork I need to lay before responding to that is to explain the connection between unaddressed post-traumatic stress injury Yes, please. And the development of moral injury. Mm. Um, okay, so if somebody has a post-traumatic stress injury, they are altered. It's a biological injury in part. Now, it's mm. also psychological. It's both. That's the thing we've really missed in my field is like we've been trying to attack it as though it were primarily a psychological thing and totally right. missed the biological piece of it. It's kind of like, would you do, you know, rehabilitation like PT on a knee before you do the knee surgery? Mm, right. right. No. Like, no. Like, or if you tear an ACL, you know, would you start doing physical therapy without getting the surgery to repair the tear? Absolutely not. So mm. Stella fundamentally is about the, um, frankly, game-changing insight that if you treat the biological injury caused by post-traumatic stress, that opens up a window where people can be in calm and control in their own bodies. And then somebody like me or somebody from my therapy team can come in during that window of transformative change when they've got this rapid mind state shift because we treated the biological injury. Now they're calm and control in their body. And I can help them develop insights or somebody from my, my therapy team can help them develop insights to promote healing and growth. So that's what we do at Stella. If you don't do that, <clears throat> so if you continue like the conventional gold standard treatment, that's not very effective. A lot of people drop out. Um, they suffer in silence. They're not up for coming in and talking about the worst day of their life with a provider, like these exposure therapies that have been touted as gold standard therapies. They, they make you talk through the worst day in your life repeatedly. Um, as a first step before you're even in control of your own body. Right. And that's too overwhelming for people. So right. they either don't get any treatment because that's not something they're willing to do. It's kind of a bridge too far for them. Or they um, they do it and they drop out. There's a huge dropout rate with right. those gold standard treatments. Um, and they continue to suffer in silence. And that's wow. the dangerous piece. So it's unaddressed trauma. Mm -hmm. they're miserable and they start doing things that violate their own warrior code mm -hmm. or their own moral code. We're talking about civilians. They yeah. start to develop a raging private alcohol addiction. They start to cheat on their wife. 
they yell at their kid and they see that look of fear on their kid's face. They yell at their wife and they see that look of fear on their wife's face. And then from there, they create this like loop where they start to see, oh, I'm the problem. I'm a, yeah, I'm a monster. I'm the problem. I'm the right. threat to my family's future well-being or safety. They commit repeated cycles of moral injuries when we do not address their trauma effectively. So Stella exists to pull people out of that post-traumatic stress injury before they do all kinds of moral injuries to themselves, um, to their family system um, that puts them at real risk for suicide, alcoholism, and all kinds of other problems. Wow. Amazing. Well, well, let's uh, let's dive into um, like I don't matter. Well, so what's associated with moral injury is guilt, shame, and betrayal. And I kind of, I mean, I, I, even when I kind of uh, like even think about those or even touch even like <laughs> guilt or shame, like I know how I begin to feel. I can only imagine living like that, um, you know, on a regular basis. And can we just dive into kind of the feeling world of it, like guilt, shame, and betrayal, like? Uh, you know, what does yeah. that look like? How does that, you know, play out? You know, what is, how do they self-sabotage based on that? And, and is there a way out with, you know, it sounds like the work you're doing with Stella is, is providing uh, something that they can um, yeah. attach to and kind of pull themselves out. That's the way out. Stella is the way out. Um, okay. But there's a critical distinction if we're going to go down the path of talking about guilt, shame, betrayal. And okay. that needs to be first, guilt is not shame. Those two are very different things. Okay. Um, so let me get clarity on that first for us. So guilt is about the things that you do. Um, and so the things that you do, if they're outside of your moral code or not aligned with your personal moral code, the ideal function of guilt is to make you aware of that. Hmm. Guilt is like, think of guilt like this. Guilt is a call for you to return to your moral core. There you go. It has a function. Right. So guilt calls us to pay attention to something we did that is not aligned with our moral code and invites us to return to alignment. Mm -hmm. And that's good. Yeah. I, I sometimes will let some of my patients, it's not out of meanness, but out of wanting to help them heal and grow. I'll let them sit with their guilt for a while. Mm -hmm. A lot of therapists will try and like redirect people when they have any negative emotion but they have to discern is this guilt or is this shame? Because mm. if somebody's feeling guilt, that is the most powerful corrective emotion you can feel. Wow. And the smart thing for me to do as a healer is let them sit in that guilt. Mm. Can motivate them to get back to their moral core. And I'm going to help them define for themselves. What did they need to do to get realigned with their moral core? Given that they're feeling this really uncomfortable feeling of guilt. It's a, we don't want to feel that like it's a motivator. So yeah. guilt is to me, um, a positive, potentially healing emotion. If you have the insight and the willingness to use it in the way it's meant to function, but a lot of people don't and they don't get the right support and they're not getting the right insights. So then guilt can grow in a kind of, um, metaphorically cancerous way. It can metastasize into shame if you don't deal with it the right way. So if you're guilty, 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 and no, no action is taken, then your self-perception begins to flip to a shame-based identity. 
And now you feel shame, which is, I am wrong. I am deeply deficient. I am unworthy of belonging. I am unworthy of love. And there's nothing good about that. Hmm. That is not, that emotion for warfighters and men in general um, is very linked to suicidal thinking. Yeah. So the shame is what I see is most directly linked to suicide attempts. Yeah. Now VA put out a study and they said, Hey, um, and this is really progressive, but I would kind of make this one adjustment to what they, they printed. It's not um, deploying to combat that's associated with suicide. So they did a study of 4 million service members who deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. And lo and behold, they discover deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan is not associated with suicide. So all those people, including a lot of providers that are civilian mental health providers that have this story in their head that veterans die by suicide because they go to combat, that's Mm. not it. That's not the truth. Um, It kind of is like, you know, well, they're traumatized by killing people. No, that's not the truth. Um, So then they put out a study saying it was actually guilt related to combat that was the single biggest predictor of suicide attempts. And I would say it's shame Shame. related to combat. And they didn't use the right word, but Mm. they were on to something. They just didn't understand that critical distinction. Mm. So if it's shame related to combat, then yeah, that would be um, definitely related to suicide attempts in my observation. Wow. Yeah, that's tied directly to the moral injuries Mm. that we're discussing today. So for those who are tuning in, that's what we're talking about here with Doc Shauna Springer, if you're tuning in late, talking about moral injury and how either actively or passively you can experience that through violation of your own moral code, through doing something actively or passively through not doing something to prevent something that would that would violate your moral code. And, um, you know, coming. What about betrayal? Let's just tie up that loop if you can, because betrayal is associated deeply with moral injury. It's not like and that's like and that's typically or can be, I guess, in a relationship to something else. Well, and to yourself. But yeah. okay. here's the tie in. So um, betrayal usually starts from an outside force. Right. And if you don't address it correctly, it becomes an inside force. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it usually starts, you can't typically start with, I betrayed myself eh, sometimes, but usually what I see, and this is like a lot of the time with first responders, um, it's administrative betrayal, not the trauma that they are facing. And there's hundreds of traumas they face. Mm-hmm. It's typically the betrayal, the feeling of, um, you are not one of us, and we did not have your back. After we told you we had your back, mm-hmm. after we told you you were family to us, we actually are ready to throw you out and um, sideline you, and you're not a mar- member of this tribe anymore. Oof. So that betrayal, if you don't help someone address it appropriately, can then spiral into a kind of self-betrayal when people go down that dark tunnel and they start doing those things because they're in so much anguish, psychological anguish when they're kicked out of the tribe, that is their identity. It's not just a job, it's their identity and their identity and their integrity gets fundamentally questioned. That's Mm -hmm. one of the worst wounds for a service member or first responder 
and for some men with a very strong moral code, one of the worst injuries you can sustain. And if you don't address it up front with the right insights and the right support, people will develop um, a predictable cascade of essentially self-betrayal or betrayal of like their wife. If they cheat on their wife, they take it you know, to that level. Self-betrayal, they develop alcoholism and they're lying all the time about it. And they're betraying mm. their own moral code because they're now lying and hiding. And you know, all this shame is starting to like become cancerous, right? That's how that kind of thing metastasizes. Mm. Does that make sense, Will? No, no, it makes a lot of sense. And I can see how, you know, from what I understand about the mind is if you keep you know, if you keep living this story of like, you know, I've been betrayed, right? And you keep um, feeling, experiencing, repeating that story and, and the, everything that goes along with it. And eventually I'd imagine if you don't get seek out help, if you don't speak out, if you don't, you know, get help, it can be, I am, I betray myself. I can see how it goes right to the self over time yeah. uh, because, because of, because of the, how, wh- what you're, you're living in that betrayal and therefore you become that betrayal to yourself and it's just so and i yeah. you know it really hits it hits deep um because I, I have some family members that struggle with alcoholism and and now they're starting to kind of hide you know their alcoholism and, and mm-hmm. i just just really helped me wake up to how deep it can go especially when they take another step it's like oh i'm not going to drink in front of the family but now i'm going to live in the shame and the guilt and you know yeah. of, of it all it's like oh god um thank you for they're bringing baking that in that blood. shame mm. yeah yeah but, mm. Thank you for all this. This is well. I mean, it's tough to it's tough to take on. I mean, God, I feel this so much in my heart um, in a lot of ways. But I mean, this is it, but this is how we change by creating awareness and they're becoming aware, and then for hopefully, you know, um, taking the steps to get help that you need. Yeah. So one of the phrases I always use with people I'm trying to heal and support is, "The truth will set you free, mm. but first it will make you miserable." Okay. That's that's all. That's all. That's real. You know, it's real. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So a lot of times my role is about helping people understand these really hard truths that eventually create a point of inflection for them where they can heal, but not until they have clarity and insight. Mm. Wow. Let's uh, talking about the the other side of that. So sort of before like. In the military, say something has left of bang, right? Something prior to mm-hmm. the the event yeah. happening. How do we get left of bang um, <laughs> in in regards to high risk professions? Maybe building up resilience against moral injury. And then I want to come back to a question that I asked before about <clears throat> what can we do as society or community yeah. to help them build that resilience. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, thank you. Um, I hear left a bang, left a boom all the time. And people don't know what they're talking about. They love that phrase. And it's like, if you pin them down, and you say, what actually, you know, does that look like? Yeah, um, there's not a lot of there there in a lot of those conversations. So that is why I helped launch Stella in 2020, along with the best medical team in the country. Um, we do stellate ganglion block, dual sympathetic resets that restore calm and control to the nervous system. We do ketamine infusions at four of our centers. We'll be adding transcranial magnetic stimulation. We have hyperbaric, we have virtual reality in some of our, we're multimodality. Um, and we do therapy now. I'm standing up a team of docs and I'm starting to get calls. I'm not even like recruiting 
People are just finding me and saying, I want to work with you and your team. This is what Stella will do. We will give people biological interventions at the highest safety and quality standards anywhere in the country that create a window of transformative change. And then my team and I will come in and give them these insights to help them heal and grow. If you arrest that spiral where it's at a level of guilt, or even sometimes some people are pretty deep in shame, we can restore calm and control to their nervous system or use ketamine to help them see potential opportunities for healing, unlock kind of their innate capacity to heal. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I can come in with my team and give them the critical insights like those I'm sharing today on your podcast that help people get a direction for where they can heal. We're not going to be doing long-term therapy. We're not going to be seeing people for years and years. Like these are a team of the equivalent of special forces operators in the therapy world. I want them to come in, do this really powerful work with people and then have people go and and heal and, and return to their communities. If they need to do, you know, further work with other treatment providers in an ongoing way, that's great, but they're going to have expert guidance with these kinds of insights about where they need to grow and how they need to do it from these sessions with me and my team. So that's what Stella is. It's a combination of these innovative biological treatments that we do Mm -hmm. in the clinic and the teletherapy sessions my team and I will be doing to bring them long-term healing from the combination of these treatments. Those biological therapies. Stella is the answer. Yeah, is, these biological therapies. You mentioned ketamine. Is like MDMA a part of this? Like, I'm I'm just curious about, you know, what I mean. I, I'm sure it's different and unique for each particular person. Uh, but just maybe, yeah, if you can speak a little bit to how you might potentially treat like uh, somebody with a moral injury with through Stella. I'm very curious to hear how that goes down. Yeah. So ketamine is legal right now, mm-hmm. um, and we have ketamine infusions at our four centers for excellence. So let me talk about ketamine for a second and then I'll fill you in on where we are with MDMA. So ketamine is um, administered most often in three ways, either through a sublingual lozenge that people take that has some of the ketamine in it, it kind of dissolves, um, or through intramuscular injection or through um, infusion, infusion. So when I say um, at times, I don't think I said today, but Stella is also like our moral core is responsible innovation led by the medical team and myself. We are going to do the most innovative treatments in a way that balances that with patient safety. And that's non-negotiable for us. So before we accept any new modality, it gets a review from the medical team and myself about whether we should even adopt it and the conditions under which we should deliver it to promote our patient's safety first and foremost. So when we do ketamine at Stella, we only do infusion. We don't do sublingual, we don't do intramuscular. And there's a couple reasons for that. The first is that um, if you do infusions, you can precisely control the dose and it's what's called 100% bioavailable. Mm, Whereas with the other delivery methods, you can't really control the dose and you don't know it's it's variable and um, it can affect people in ways that you can't predict. Okay, so now we have to get to the distinction between 
productive suffering and unproductive suffering. Oh, yeah. So I've already told you that I'm okay with letting people sit with guilt, mm-hmm. right? That's productive suffering. Letting them bake in shame is unproductive suffering and it's dangerous. So in the world of ketamine, if you give somebody an intramuscular injection and you give them too high a dose or they have some kind of a physiological reaction and they go into a a level of unproductive shame where they feel like their demons are clobbering them, there's nothing you can do. You can't pull them out of that. You can't bring them back. Mm. With the IV, you can put a medication into their IV um, bag and they will come out of that immediately. Wow. So the reason wow. why Stella does only infusion and we're firm on that. There's a lot of other places that money is their moral core. I guess they're driving, you know, motivation. So they go, Oh yeah, we're going to like deliver this sublingual thing and then monitor you from a distance. I don't even know how that's legal, but um, I think that'll get shut down in the years to come when we kind of look at what's happening with that kind of irresponsible practice. But with Stella, uh, we only do it in the clinic, medically monitored by medically qualified people um, with overwatch on them, oversight on them medically, in other words, um, and it's IV infusion only. So we do we do ketamine, and let me tell you, it's phenomenal for moral injury. Um, I was in Chicago in June, and I took three special forces guys and a civilian all in the same week through this treatment protocol that we use that uses ketamine infusions. And they're all people with very complex um, traumas and moral and moral injuries. Ketamine is phenomenal for unlocking our potential to heal and really developing an understanding and a clarity around what's happening in mental warfare and on the moral and spiritual dimension of who someone is. Mm. Wow. Now, in, in the world of ketamine, there's this whole kind of line of thinking that I'm troubled by where people say, trust in the wisdom of the medication, things like that, as though the medication were a God, a replacement for God. And Mm -hmm. in my head, it's not. So I wrote an article on psychology today. Maybe you want to link it to the show. It's Mm -hmm. called Ketamine is Not God. And Mm -hmm. I explained how ketamine works, but it's very important, especially for warfighters and first responders to understand when Stella does ketamine, we're using this as a tool to help unlock your innate capacity to heal yourself. There's no wisdom in this medication. Anything that comes up in your ketamine infusion session comes from your soul, your moral code, your warrior code, and we are facilitating that healing. It's not delivered to you by the medication as though that medication had a soul. So I hear this and I get troubled because I think, no, no, no. We have to anchor this in each person's like own individual morality. And when people talk about trust the wisdom of the medication, a lot of times they're trying to select themselves into a position of high priestess for this religious intervention that I don't believe we should be doing. It's having a power over people that doesn't, it's not consistent with my morality as a healer. So Mm -hmm. the way that I talk about ketamine is it's a tool. It unlocks an incredible ability for parts of your brain to communicate with each other in new ways. And for Mm -hmm. you to see the potential for healing, it pulls you out of a rut and puts you into a, a plane of infinite possibility where you can then align again with your moral code and realize who you are and who you're meant to be. 
it's phenomenal for doing that. Great. So ketamine is almost the best intervention mm. I've seen wow. for moral injury. Mm -hmm. And uh, MDMA, you're going to talk about that. Is that, yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. So MDMA, um, again, like it's something that if Stella adopts MDMA, it will only be in the context of a full review by mm -hmm. myself and the medical team. And I've started that review. So I've started to have conversations with people um, around the use of MDMA. And there are some problems there that we would need to solve for. Mm. You know, people are looking at the front end of the puppy on this one. Mm. Oh my gosh, it's so amazing. It's, you know, incredible and it can facilitate healing. And the back end of the puppy is well and truly there. Mm. Back end of the puppy on this one is, um, here's the shit we have to figure out or we're not doing it. Mm. When people are in that suggestible mode, sometimes they can develop an attachment to their therapist that's inappropriate. Mm. They can develop wow. feelings of love for their therapist and put them on an altar of you're my savior, mm -hmm. or they can develop romantic love for a therapist. And that is why you see in the MAPS protocols, there are often two therapists, one of each gender. They're trying to hedge against that Smart. Yeah. inappropriate attachment formation because it's kind of like in the animal world, you know, under certain conditions, animals will imprint on a person. Well, MDMA releases oxytocin. And if you put somebody in that space with a therapist that they think is their savior, it can create an inappropriate, dangerous attachment to that person. Interesting. And then you got a screen for the kind of therapist that thinks like me and says, I'm not the savior here. Let me just be clear. Like you're healing yourself. You earn this healing. I help you. I guide this. And I'm never going to allow you to put me in that role of being your savior. I reject that. Mm -hmm. So otherwise, if you don't, there have been cases of therapists really developing an attachment to their own ego mm -hmm. as the savior. And that's dangerous. And I won't right. do that with Stella. Right. So that's the second back end of the puppy. Um, the third thing is um, there's some medical issues with this, you know, that really have to be figured out. Um, the fourth thing with this is how in the world are you going to get two therapists to do this for eight hours a session mm -hmm. with about 18 therapy sessions total in between one hour and people will be able to afford this. Like yeah. just because something's FDA approved doesn't mean it's covered by insurance. Right. And, the only people that are going to be able to afford this are the top 1%. Right. So how, right. how do you scale that? Like how in the world do you get the therapy staff? And, and then you have to think ethically about how am I using the resources I have? If I could use my therapy team with ketamine integration sessions or dual sympathetic reset and integration sessions after that to heal eight people, 16 people, in the same time as I would pour into one person, does that become a moral ethical issue for me as a lead psychologist? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I think MDMA has a lot of potential for sure, mm -hmm. but I think what you see is all the hype and you don't have people really grounded in what do you need to guard against and what do you need to protect? So this is my word to you. We will do this at Stella if, and when myself and the medical team, have determined that it is safe for people, ethically responsible, and we have the right structure and support 
to deliver this at the highest standard of patient care and safety. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, you yeah. sound like a real warrior, like, I mean, or uh, with that strong, you know, understanding what it takes to really approach a problem in a way, you know, that is like ethical and like safe. And thank you for putting in all that extra work instead of just going after the money, which it's I think a lot of moral uh, code. Yeah. Yeah, you have your own moral code, but I feel like so many don't listen to that code and they just think about becoming wealthy and doing this and getting a big name on wherever. So thanks for putting in those extra steps because that's what really is required in order to do this properly. Hmm. Thank you. Yes, it is. And yes, we need to be doing that. And yes, I do have my own form of warriorship. Yes, um, yeah. And the people that I'm fighting for are the people who suffer from trauma. Hmm. Yeah. Well, being being that this show is men talking mindfulness, let's mm -hmm. let's talk about mindfulness based practices that are out there. Can mindfulness practice help to heal or maybe even prevent a moral injury? So mindfulness, as I think of it, let me make sure my terms are clear, John. I might need sure. a little help from you guys here. Is kind of a um, awareness, like an exquisite awareness of the present moment. Um, help me define mindfulness yeah. before I start to kind no, of that's, explain how this could work. That's absolutely uh, the, the overall kind of generic term for mindfulness is being present in the here and now with all your senses and emotions without any judgment. And that's, uh, you know, paraphrasing John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness in, in my way of thinking is it's a way of living your life. But when I, when I say mindfulness practice, and it's kind of a, a gray area, when I say mindfulness practice, I'm talking, you know, breath work, uh, meditation, um, those, those types of modalities that are connected to, but not necessarily mindfulness exclusively. But yeah, I yeah. guess meditation, breath work, those types of things. Yeah. That can I guess self-reflection and yeah. you know what I mean? Like understanding the self, understanding my mind, my emotions and... But yeah, uh, please, um, just bring her. Yeah. Okay, just want to make sure I'm clear on the, the way we're talking about it. So yes, the answer is yes. Um, there is a reason why mindfulness is one of the topics that is in our core set of things that we focus on in the, after, um, the weeks after <clears throat> Stella biological treatments. So <clears throat> what I've done is, excuse me, <clears throat> let me just... Yeah, get your no sip. Thank you. Wet my whistle. <clears throat> there you go. <laughs> so you can sing. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh, no. No, I'm just kidding. There's a lot of things know. I'd rather do than that. That would that would morally injure some people like, immediately. <laughs> Thanks for making the show light again. Like, <laughs> can't do it. Can't do it. She's an asset, but not in that way. Um, okay, so um there is a, a core set of focus areas that I've defined and developed for Stella for my therapy team that I'm standing up um, in the immediate weeks following our powerful biological interventions. Mm. So we create a strong and a profound mind state shift. And then, like I said, we get in there for like four weeks, maybe six mm. weeks, um, no more than that, and really give people some um, expert guidance on where they need to heal and how they need to heal. And there's about 10 topics 
that I've really put time and effort into developing, articulating, providing unique insights around, and mindfulness is one of them. Um, because to our, our topic today, if we're thinking about awareness of the present, the present moment with no judgment, that's a beautiful part of how we can start to get traction with moral injury, right? So using mindfulness, I would say you treat the biological injury first, and then mindfulness is a practice after that mm -hmm. that could help you get clear on, without judgment, mm -hmm. uh, where you feel like you need to realign with your moral code. And without wow. judgment is key here. Yeah, you know, no, so absolutely. like awareness um, without like allowing yourself to be overwhelmed by shame would be the key to using that as a tool to then promote further healing. So yes, I think it's, you know, it's, it's part of my core, I don't want to call it curriculum, but my, my core areas of focus for that, that work that we'll be doing at Stella following our biological interventions. Excellent. Excellent. Wow. That's great to hear. Yeah, it's like, hey, men talking mindfulness. You know, it's so nice yep. that mindfulness is included in such a powerful program. I mean, that's why I wear uh, your shirt. You walk <laughs> yeah, around with your shirt on. Yeah, because I believe in mindfulness. You know. Yeah, it well, makes a big what difference in our lives. Thank you, John. We obviously believe in what you're doing too. So. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I know you're going to be having to jump off here soon and want to respect your time and give you a break before your next call or next meeting um, and wanted to give you a chance. I know you've talked about Stella, but what else uh, What else would you like to share with our audience, ways for them to find you? I know you've got multiple books out there. Uh, if you want to share those, I want to give, yourself, give you an opportunity to plug what it is you do. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, John. Thanks, Will. Um, so let me just finish by first, I'm going to share Stella's website, and then I'm going to talk about some of the other stuff I have going on. So um, the big framework for me is it's these unique, innovative biological insights that unlock potential for healing. And people need the psychological insights that I've developed if they really want to get well. Um, so those two in combination with each other are what brings my patients healing. So on the biological side, um, the website for Stella is www.stellacenter.com if people want to check out what we're doing on the biological treatment side. And then the insights um, that I develop can come from a few things that I've really worked hard to make mm. digestible for people and really accessible for people. So to me, when I write, it's a way of scaling insights. Like I write books because they scale the kinds of insights, John, that we've talked about in Warrior that help people go, oh, I didn't see it that way. Okay, so like for my rage, like I already have the ability to self-regulate my body because I learned that when I was firing, you know, on the range. Okay, so uh, when I'm using firearms, I use that same ability. Now I can migrate that over to having the ability to self-regulate. That's one of, you know, many insights in my book, Warrior, and I use my writing to scale that. A lot of the people that I write for don't want to read a book. They don't have time, and it's just not how they take in information. So my number one recommendation is go and listen on Audible if you want more of these insights to my book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us. And a lot of men will in the civilian um population that have a moral core 
will find a lot of areas. I, I get that feedback all the time. Like you wrote it for warriors, but you, you wrote it for me too. Cause I really resonate with this, even if I've never served in the military. So warrior, how to support those who protect us. Um, I have it on audible It's professionally produced. So that is my number one recommendation. I, um, I the next book I wrote is called quick, relentless uh, courage. Can, can I just What's jump that? in? I just want to give a plug for Warrior because I've, I've read it. My sister works in the VA as a licensed clinical social worker, and I've sent it to her. I think that it should be required reading to work with veterans, with service members, as service members, and anybody who loves a service member is connected to a service member at all. Um, I think it should be required reading. It is fantastic, and you hit the nail mm-hmm. on the head. So many times in that book, I, I was like, this is gold. I've read it twice. It's fantastic. Wow. So fantastic read. Thanks, John. Thanks. Yeah. Um, that is like my heart and soul of who I am as a healer and all those insights that came from partnerships with warriors, um, even at the end of the tunnel of despair. So like if I wanted to get in there and help people um, stop dying by suicide, I would say start with understanding a whole new framework for how that progresses and, and all kinds of other topics like moral injury and shame is a chapter in warrior. So that is the book that's most relevant to our conversation today um, as well as survivor guilt, grief. I mean, there's just a, a number of other topics. So uh, my second recommendation is my next book is also going to talk intensely about moral injury. So it's called relentless courage, winning the battle against frontline trauma Um Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman that I'm, you know, a fan of his work is phenomenal. He's like Jonathan Shea to me, like another luminary. He described Relentless Courage as one of the most important books of our time. And so he is backing this. Um, There's about 450 five-star reviews on Amazon. And they're not just ratings. Like if you go on there, you see people pouring their hearts out about how this saved their life or changed their mentality Um, long written reviews are most of the reviews we have on Amazon for that. And we also professionally recorded it incidentally in the the studio where Beyonce got her start. (laughs) And so I would say, listen to relentless courage, you know, as a second um, resource. And then the third recommendation I would make is, you know, if people want to go through my book, Warrior, um, like I'm having a, a, the Seal Future Foundation, John, is yeah. doing this right now. I'm going to come and present to them. Fantastic. They've been doing like a guided uh, journey through my book, Warrior. So I created a master guide for mental wellness for civilians, but geared, you know, primarily for warriors and first responders. And if you go to shaunaspringer.com, um, it's less than 100 bucks. And what you would get is a structured, guided, supported experience through this online guide. So for every chapter in Warrior, there's a video, there's take-home points, there's questions to drive reflection, there's exercises that are not in the book to help people apply this. Um, And it's powerful if they go through it on their own, they can go through it with their wife, Um, but it's really powerful to go through this in a group like the SEAL Future Foundation is currently doing. And so they've been, you know, going through and <clears throat> talking about each chapter together um, in this kind of like book study, book club kind of format. That's why I did that. So Beautiful. that will really help the insights and warrior to really mm-hmm. um, kind of land and, and 
for people to integrate and hold those. So that's shaunaspringer.com. And then yeah. the last thing I would say is um, I do speaking and training. So if people are in organizations and they want me to come in and do paid speaking and training, um, that's also something that I'm passionate about. I can do it, you know, virtually. Um, and, you know, if people are in California, uh, sometimes I can even do something in person. And I would come out and I would talk about Stella for part of that. And I would share, you know, on any number of topics, but always, you know, presenting that this biological injury piece is something we need to understand as part of how we change what's not okay right now. Awesome. Well, we will make sure all of that, because yeah. every yeah. single one of those are, are sound like amazing resources. Yeah. Uh, we will make sure all those are in the show notes. And uh, yeah, thank you, Shauna, for sharing those. Thank you for being with us today. Yeah. Fantastic conversation, very insightful, yeah. um, deep and painful even at times, but, uh, but important. So yeah. thank you for being here with us. And uh, I want to wrap it up here with a closing practice to get us all settled as we go into our day, cool. get you settled prior to your next meeting, and then for our audience to get you guys settled prior to doing whatever it is you, you guys are doing next. But prior to that, because some of you guys may tune out, just want to say, hey, thank you for joining us. Um, mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, if you did get something out of this episode, please share it with your family, your friends, whoever you think could get something out of it. Share it mm -hmm. on video, share it on audio. We have it on both on YouTube and then we've gone on all our various social media. So and leave us a review. Yeah, leave us a review, please. Leave, talking about those reviews, like Shauna was just talking, please leave us a review. Those help. So yeah. all right. it makes our day, doesn't it? it when it we does. get a review, well, like you know, well, I can't really like ask people to review Warrior, or but like without asking you to review my books, it mm. makes my day when I get a review. <laughs> Well, I mean, so, I'm looking at the Amazon review right now, Relentless Courage, right? Winning the battle against frontline trauma on Amazon right now, 462, 4.9, five-star reviews, Goodreads, 35 rating, uh, you know, on Goodreads. Uh, this is just, I mean, congratulations for the success in this book and really changing the conversation and, and our way forward, you know, um, through moral injury and, and all the things that are you know, impacting our service members and frontline workers and stuff. So, Sean, I just can't thank you enough for all that you're doing and, and how you're doing it. And it's with such integrity and such a deep moral code. So there you go. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And John, thank you, you, know, you know, yeah, because you know, the, the power of like reviews, I will also share that I lost 75 star reviews on warrior in a single day that awesome. like cut me deep. Because I published a second edition of Warrior with some oh, additional content. Yeah. And Amazon said, oh, no, no, we'll link it all. It'll be, you know, it's the same, you know, ISBN. Yeah. And they, they, I lost 75 star oh, reviews. Wow. So mm -hmm. I am like, it's, it bothers me every day that I think when I think about it. So um, if people have read Warrior, um, you know, mm -hmm. I, I'd like to see like that is my heart and soul. And I'd like to, to, mm -hmm get those reviews posted back up. So even if you reviewed it once, um, <laughs> consider putting putting the review you've already made back up. That would really help me. Yeah. Oh, I got some. Yeah. I got a national uh -oh. alert on my phone here. So I, I did turn off the oh. signals, but even a national alert. Yeah. Okay. If you need to, John, yeah. I can close the like practice. It might be coming in on multiple phones. <laughs> I think oh, it's coming in on yours too, Will. But hey, um, oh. so anyway, Thank you again. Can't say thank you enough thank for you being on the show. Thank you for being here and what it is you do. So now let's do that closing practice for everyone. So 
I mean, that alert just got me all amped it up. Said, it says no action required. I just checked it, right? Okay. It's just a test. No action required publicly. Uh, so uh, we're all uh, safe, everybody. All right, all right. So thank you. Let's calm down. With some all right. Let's okay, thanks. <laughs> so, all right. Let's, we're just going to do some simple breathing, like nothing, nothing super fancy here. Just focusing our attention on our breath. And if closing your eyes is comfortable and safe, both physically and psychologically, then please. Oh, we lost Doc. Let's try and bring her back in here real quick. We lost you there for a second there, Doc. Yeah, sorry. All right. <laughs> All right. So as I was saying, if uh, if closing your eyes feels safe, both physically and psychologically, then I invite you to do so. Otherwise, just continue what you're doing, but bring your attention to your breath. Just noticing the physical aspects of your breath, the rise and fall of your chest and belly, Noticing where the air enters as you inhale and where it is that it exits as you exhale. Notice the physical sensations, the feeling where you inhale, maybe at the tips of your nostrils. And the same as you exhale, maybe your tongue and your lips as you breathe out through your mouth. And then notice how the air feels as you inhale, slightly cooler, maybe slightly drier versus how it feels as you breathe out, slightly warmer. And now take one deep cleansing breath together, deep breath in, going all the way to the top, hold for a second, and now release. And as you release, bring some movement back into your body, move around, move your fingers, wiggle your toes, and if your eyes were closed, go ahead and blink them open. And once again, Doc, such a great show. Thank you so much. And we look forward to having you on again, I'm sure, in the future. Yeah. So great stuff thank you both i really enjoyed it and um you know i believe in what you're doing so i'm gonna go ahead and give you that rating as soon as i can figure uh -huh. out how to do that so <laughs> we'll send you a link <laughs> and I'll make all right sure yeah I'll do this make it easy for me yeah well right, right on thank you all right thank you buddy for our for our listeners for our viewers thank you again until next time take care thank you doc Thank you, everybody. Peace. Thank, Thank you for well. joining us today. We hope you walk away with some new tools and insights to guide you on your life journey. New episodes are being published every week, so please join us again for some meaningful discussion. For more information, please check out mentalkingmindfulness.com.